0: This episode is brought to you by Mountain Sea Media. I spent half my life near the Pacific Ocean and the other half in the mountains of Central Oregon. These places are full of profound stories and experiences that guide my life, even now as a media creator and a beer professional. This is how Mountain Sea Media was born. I realized how impactful stories are to our lives and business. Stories share good experiences and the warmth of friends, they improve business by sharing these experiences and connecting deeply with our customers. If you'd like to connect better with your customers through copywriting and storytelling, contact me at jeremy at It's your story. I'll help you tell it. Welcome to episode 39 of Good Beer
1: Matters. So there's this entire culture and and history and and, uh, artistry and and science and all the stuff around it. I want to keep the egalitarian nature of craft beer, but um, I also think that we need to work on raising the conversation around beers. Talk about the beer as the beautiful thing that it is.
0: We have been educating each other through the art of storytelling for millennia, Not much has changed, except now we do it through movies, books, music, and even beer. Yes, beer. Behind every beer is a story of how and why it came to be. Flavors also have the ability to conjure stories through images and memories. Case in point, freshly baked cookies may remind you of your grandmother, or tequila may remind you of that one night in college you'd rather forget. The better we can understand the language of flavor, the better we can understand the stories behind the beer. The trouble is many of us aren't fluent in the language of flavor and therefore need a guide. My next guest is a writer and an educator who helps people understand the stories beer have to tell. My name is Jeremy. I'm a certified Cicerone, BJCP judge, IBD certified brewer and a beer writer. I believe the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. I believe there's a world of wisdom found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. This is Good Beer Matters. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 39 of Good Beer Matters with beer writer and educator David Nilsson. Kind of quickly introduce yourself, but tell us a little bit about your background in beer and writing and and beer education as well.
1: Yeah, sure. So I am a, a professional beer journalist and educator. So I write for a host of uh, beer publications, um, both in print and online. Most of the big magazines, at least the ones that are left, and then uh, a lot of online publications. Um, then I write for some regional travel and food publications as well, both about food and beer. Uh, And then I do a lot of professional beer tastings, uh, pairings, educational classes. Uh, I go around to breweries, bars, restaurants, even uh, public libraries, a few other interesting spots, and um, do different educational events, just try to get people to enjoy beer more. Uh, I'm a certified Cicerone. I'm currently studying for my advanced Cicerone uh, certification, hoping to take that next year. Uh, I'm also a National Book Critics Circle member, so I um, I do some literary criticism for um, you know different literary journals and magazines and things like that as well. Uh, I started doing this full-time about two and a half years ago. I was doing it part-time for a little bit before that. Um, but I, you know, have been into craft beer just as a fan for probably 15 years now, uh, and just over time um, was, was learning more and more about it just for myself. You know, I, whenever I take up a new interest, I always kind of dive into it from the education end of it. Uh, so, you know, I was reading all the books I could and At some point, I realized that I wanted to actually kick it up a notch. I started studying uh, directly for my Cicerone certification, and uh, that was coinciding with uh, realizing that it was time for me to leave my previous job, and so I decided to kind of take a gamble and jump out doing this full-time as a freelancer.
0: What got you interested in beer in the first place? It sounds like uh, it, I believe in the previous conversation you and I had offline that you worked um, in libraries and and I'm guessing that you've done uh, quite a bit of writing beforehand, but mm-hmm. how, what what brought you into the beer world? what what enamored you?
1: Sure. Um, well, I think it was always going to be something, whether it was beer or a different drink or a different food. i I definitely enjoy. Uh, the tasting process and I've always been pretty exploratory when it came to trying new flavors and things like that um, If I never really went through the like cheap crappy beer phase that most people went through to begin with uh, I suffered under the misconception that much of the country has for a lot of the 20th century that beer was just a, a cheap drink in general and if you had any you know, sense of taste you drank wine or spirits which meant that as a young person, um, instead of drinking cheap crappy beer, I drank cheap crappy wine, Um, and then started drinking craft beer just because of its connection with our region. Uh, My family used to vacation up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, and on uh, a trip up there probably about 15 years ago, uh, my sister and I were looking for something to take with us back to the campsite and we found a six pack of Great Lake's Edmund Fitzgerald Porter, which um having vacationed along the lake, we had always had a, an interest in uh Great Lake shipping, the shipwreck history there and, and and uh the Edmund Fitzgerald was, you know, really interesting stories. So we were like, oh, this is great. You know, it's just a connection to what we're doing and picked that up and picked up Bells two Heart of And um was like you know what these are actually good. These this isn't you know I, I was lied to. Beer is not bad. <laughs> so uh, from those two beers, kind of um, branched outward from there, and um, that just kind of became the thing that I was into. One of the great advantages to beer is that it it's cheap. You know I mean even the best beer is going to be uh more affordable than um than a lot of wine or spirits are going to be so it was an easy and accessible thing to start experimenting with that with without you know breaking the bank right away Were,
0: were these your as i call them gateway beers the the beers that first made you realize oh my gosh there's something more to this
1: yeah those two beers i got lucky uh so it was, it was Bell's Two-Hearted, Great Lakes Edmund Fitzgerald, um, and then Sierra Nevada Pale Ale um, followed very quickly. And it was those three beers that um, were really my gateway in, uh, and they're still three of my favorite beers. So I was fortunate to not have to uh, go through a more circuitous route to get to good beer. Well,
0: it's funny. I, I wish I got paid every time someone told me that Sierra Nevada Pale Ale was their favorite beer. I, I I wouldn't need to do this at all. Right. Uh, yeah. Oh and I, I'm
1: wondering how long, I mean, I hope that that's always true, but you know, for the newer and, and younger drinkers, I'm wondering uh, what those beers are now that are introducing them. I, I don't know if it's still Sierra Nevada pale ale and New Belgium fat tire. You know, I'm wondering what those new ones are. Well, and and I, you know,
0: I I wonder the same thing. Uh, If Sierra Nevada was uh, pale ale, was that that beer for our generation and even before? um, you know it still it hasn't gone away it's still popular it still sells well i i, I spoke mm-hmm. with ken grossman about it and 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 he didn't really have a, an answer other than it is just that's that beer that sells because it's always sold but if you look at other things <clears throat> excuse me if you look at other things it's it's kind of like one of those beers where we're more inclined to say well back in my day we had the sierra nevada Pell ale <laughs> and we were happy you know and Right. And uh, but it 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 it's still is surviving through the times, and it's it's a bit of a unicorn to me. Well, it helps that it's really good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. That that always helps. Um, but that's a you bring up a really good question. Is what is the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale for uh, the newer or younger generations? And yeah. It sounds like there's an article in there.
1: Yeah, I've I've posed the question on Twitter before, and I, I don't think uh, anybody had a. Real solid response to it. I'm wondering if maybe there isn't one beer uh, because of the way that you know the amount of diversity we have now. It's probably less likely that there is going to be that one beer that kind of catches the uh, the attention of the entire generation the way that Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and a couple others did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I, I, wow. You got my wheels turning now. I we might, <laughs> uh, it sounds like there's a couple articles coming down in, in the next few months. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, so speaking of articles and, and writing specifically beer writing, um, uh, who do you write for you, you? I think you said you're freelance, so I'm guessing there's a number mm-hmm. of publications.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I, I write for Craftbeer.com, pellicle mag, uh, porch drinking, um, I was writing for Beer Advocate before they closed down. Uh, I've written once for Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and I'm working with uh, John Hall right now on on hopefully getting an- another story going here. Um, and then I I kind of do a lot of piecemeal stuff for um, uh, non beer specific publications here and there. So I write for uh, Civil Eats, which is a website that focuses on the intersection of the food industry with um, politics and, and sociology, uh, so I've done some articles for them, um, and then I write for, like I said, a lot of regional publications that focus on the scene right around here, so Ohio Magazine and Edible Ohio Valley and, and some others along those lines.
0: Okay, and, and so besides beer, obviously we're discussing beer, you're a beer writer, you also uh, write about food, but what else is in your writer's wheelhouse?
1: Sure. From those two things, I mean, if we're staying on that side of the the board, from those two things, you can branch out into, you know, aspects of travel and and some other stuff. But, um, like I said earlier, I'm also a National Book Critics Circle member. So I write primarily poetry criticism for a number of big publications. Um, I do interviews and then uh, specific reviews for a, a lot of different literary journals. So, um, it's mostly you know beer and food and then the literary criticism is, is most of what I do. I've done some creative writing and gotten it uh, some minor publications along those lines, but um, since those don't tend to to pay real great, they've kind of gotten pushed to the sidelines in favor of the professional stuff so you, I'm sorry
0: you're conjuring an image for me uh you seem um uh, visually, I imagine you being that guy with the uh, corduroy uh, professor's <laughs> jacket, with the uh, with the patches on the elbows, carrying a a well worn uh, leather uh, briefcase uh, with a uh, beer in your hand. <laughs> but but it's but it's a stemmed uh, uh, tulip glass, is what I envisioned. <laughs> is, is, is...
1: Sure. Well, the tulip glass is correct. I'm not sure about the rest. It depends on on the event I'm going to. Okay. Well, of course, um,
0: I mean that respectfully. But uh, you seem like a sure. very well educated, very. Um, uh uh well unlike me right now a uh, good communicator with a beer in your hand and so i uh,
1: <laughs> sure i try to be
0: <laughs> um well you know, so you're obviously a a a, a very um well-spoken and you have a uh quite a portfolio of beer writings and just getting into uh, the gamut of everything but one question i have being a beer writer and i've also spoken to john hall um, for this podcast as well and we talked about beer writing but one question i didn't ask him i want to ask you is why do we need good beer writers why do we need beer writers period
1: Mm, yeah. Uh, well, I, the answer to that is similar to if you were to ask the same question of why do we need beer educators? I think it's all part of the same uh, answer. I think, uh, and this this might get a little long-winded, I think um, one of the great things about beer and one of the things that gets touted about it is that it is um, ostensibly egalitarian. You know, it's it's accessible. We mentioned that it is relatively inexpensive at least compared to wine and spirits uh and so beer gets this reputation as being accessible to anyone everybody gets to take part in it everybody gets to have an opinion and their you know their favorite beers and all that and i wholeheartedly endorse that and i want beer to hold on to that one thing that i think um Comes along with that as a consequence is there ends up being a bit of a backlash against any effort to uh, elevate the conversation around beer or to bring any sort of um, sophistication or, or intellectualism to beer. So if you're going to come out and say, "Hey, maybe this type of beer isn't great for where craft beer is going," um, that's going to get stamped out really quickly because you're you know you're harshing somebody's vibe. Um, and I think it's a two-edged uh, sword with that because I want to keep the egalitarian nature of craft beer, but um, I also think that we need to work on raising the conversation around beer. So um, one of the reasons I think we need uh, beer writers and beer educators is because we need somebody to keep the industry honest in terms of it's great that such-and-such such is selling really well, but is such-and-such – good beer? Is such and such uh, heading us in a direction we want to go? What would it mean to head in the direction we wanted to go? Uh, it, it's fine if everybody wants to drink and enjoy a beer that tastes like a breakfast cereal, but is it objectively good beer? You know, and So I think we need writers and educators to be able to at least provide some sort of backsplash that um, sort of uh, hems in that conversation a little bit and at least steers it in some direction. And I think we also need that for the purpose of raising the general conversation around beer and allowing the uh, uh, the folks who are just getting into this to find some sort of footing. Because I imagine this is true for you. Well, for me, when I decided that I wanted to go from just you know having good beer in the fridge and enjoying that when I wanted to drink to really understanding more about beer and learning about it, I needed beer writers and and beer educators to help me do that. I needed somebody to um, uh, provide bumper rails, basically, as I was uh, bouncing around between this hundred some different styles and thousands of years of history trying to find my footing in that. So uh, being able to find somebody who says, hey, this is what Uh, this beer style is supposed to taste like, and these are what the basic flavor uh, notes that you're going to get in it. Uh, That's helpful, even though on some level, you know, people want to be able to use their own palate and, and figure out what it is that they're tasting on their own. If you really want to hone the ability to do that, you need somebody else to say it's valid that you're tasting such and such, but that might not actually be correct for how we describe this style. And, Uh, being able to do that in a way that is not snobby and is not um, cutting off conversation, but is heading that conversation in a a more accurate and finely tuned direction. Um, I think we need writers and educators to be able to do that.
0: And it seems to me, uh, you know, I, thinking in terms of music or art or whatever, I mean we have writers that talk about music, writers that talk about art, writers that talk about food um i am not aware of any writers that talk specifically about breakfast cereal and so right. and, and so um you, you know of course, I try and write and help people explore that world beyond the pint because um, the world is vast and in my opinion and it sounds like your opinion as well there's more to the beer than just the beer. But my my fear is, is I don't want to become that writer or or anything where we're trying to add value where there's not. Hmm. And I, I don't want to be that art critic that says, look at that painting. It's all painted white. Isn't it the most amazing uh, painting we've ever seen in our life? How does that make you feel about yourself? It's just a painting that's all white. Um, and there might be some validity to that, but... Um, but where is that fine line between adding value and exploring that world of beer and educating as opposed to uh, writing that sure. that listicle of like the ten beers you should drink on your summer vacation?
1: yeah well we've all had to write those listicles because they pay but uh, yeah, that's true I think one of the things that um, one of the, the dangers that we want to avoid is that for a long time uh, in in society as a whole in wine, in fine dining, uh, education, and the concept of taste, of good taste, and the economics that build up around both of those have been used way too often to maintain class distinctions and exacerbate inequalities along race and gender lines and all sorts of things. And we obviously entirely want to avoid that. We do not want to see beer become snobbish. We don't want to see it become elitish. We don't want to see it become an oligarchy of a few people who get to decide for everyone what is good and what is not. We definitely want to avoid those things. But we can avoid that while still allowing people to have a better vocabulary and a better understanding of what it is that they're tasting, why those things taste that way, uh, where those tastes maybe came from historically, how we how we got uh, the malts and the hops and the different things that are developing those flavors. So I think what we generally need to do first, and this is where most of my attention, especially on the education side goes to, is not trying to trend set or taste set, but to just provide knowledge. You know, these are beer styles. These are national brewing traditions from Belgium, from Germany, from wherever. These are the major ingredient components to beer. Uh, You know, this is the basic of what malt is or what hops is or how yeast works or things like that. Do that in an approachable, easygoing way uh, so that over time, if you're working with people on a repeated basis, and I have a lot of education series that I do that are every month and the same people come back to them. Over time, that sort of ability to figure out what is good or what is not or to um, lean toward beers that have some sort of uh, you know tradition behind them, or, or uh, you know true artistic vision behind them, rather than just a nostalgic gimmick. Kind of happens on its own. People get invested in this. Uh, they realize that the history is interesting, or they realize that being able to tell what the different hops are doing is interesting. And on their own, they want to uh, taste the beers that are providing that for them. So. Um, I don't think you can hit it straight on necessarily. Those conversations don't tend to go too well when you're just like, no, no, no. no. Give up those those gimmicky beers and taste this over here. People are having fun with those gimmicky beers, so let them have fun with it. Um, but being able to provide that more foundational level of education to where on its own, those people kind of grow into uh, developing an appreciation for Munich Hellas Lager, whereas before that wouldn't have been something that was in their, you know, line of vision at all. So I think uh, we don't try to hit it straight on and make this a, um, a battle of sophistication, uh, you know, versus uh, the lack thereof. We try to provide knowledge. And education through our writing and through our speaking. And then from that, that provides a foundation for people to make what I hope are uh, more sophisticated decisions about beer going forward.
0: Well, you, I, I'm starting to think about, um, you know, the conversation you and I had prior to this uh, about um, just making, a, you know, what makes a good beer story. And you and I got off on a little bit of a tangent about just writing, really good writing, really good narratives. Um, mm-hmm. And we're not seeing a ton of that yet in beer. Um, a lot of it is just very utilitarian where, hey, this is what the Munich Hellas is, and this is why you should drink it um, mm-hmm. and understanding brewing ingredients. But, um, you know, I remember stories, you know, a good buddy of mine is a Tim Neville. He, uh, he's a uh, writer that travels around the world and writes for time and outside and all these things. And he and I and, and some of the stuff he's written about something seemingly mundane like a ski resort that just happens to be in north korea for example Um, just his writing of that just makes the read where you can't put it down and he Mm -hmm. and i had a conversation one day about another article that to this day kind of defines my my goal of what I want to achieve. Uh, it was a uh, outside magazine article written by Eric Hansen about uh, the Cinque Terre in uh, Italy. And the mm-hmm. story was just very comical about how he failed his assignment. He could not complete it. And he was trying to figure out how to, um, how to, <laughs> how, how to work his way into the good graces. In fact, the, the article was written almost as, as a letter to the editors that uh, started with dear editor. Um, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you. And then it goes into this apologetic story that, was just so amazing to read, but it was just of of an epic failure. How do we get stories like that about beer where people just want to um, go along that journey and maybe learn something along the way?
1: Yeah, uh, I hear what you're saying. I think um, part of getting people to recognize what you've described about beer, that it is more than just the liquid in the glass, But there's this entire culture and, and history and, and uh, artistry and, and science and all the stuff around it. Um, part of that is done just by demonstration, that you you write that story that is just a beautiful story, uh, both in terms of its content and the actual story that's being told and in your writing of it. And somebody reads that, and now they have this, this beautiful thing that is attached tangentially to their experience of beer, and that elevates beer for them. Uh, as Part of that, as an educator, when I'm speaking, um, and I don't always get to do this because sometimes it's a little bit more of a utilitarian setting, but um, part of that is a demonstration of just the way that you talk about beer and the way that you enjoy it and the way that you demonstrate for that, uh, demonstrate that to them. So if you, I'm tasting beer with a group, um, there can be this uh this tendency whenever we're talking about something in elevated terms that is not typically talked about that way to feel a little embarrassed about talking about it that way that you know you uh, nobody likes that guy at the party who you know wants to break down the album that's being played right then and explain to everybody all the you know what's going on right there because that can get awkward and you don't want to be that person with beer either but as long as you do it in a way that is not intimidating Talk about the beer as the beautiful thing that it is, you know, describe uh, how visually beautiful it is, describe uh, the memories it makes you think of, do all those things, model that for people who are not used to doing it for themselves, they might chuckle a little bit at first, and then they will get over it because they will see that you're serious about what you're saying. And. Um, You know, you're the expert in the room, so you're getting to set the temperature for that. And I feel like demonstration between both writing and in person uh, through speaking are the best ways that we uh, provide that for people.
0: Yeah, it seems everyone loves to listen to someone who's insanely passionate about something. Mm Exactly. Exactly. Even, yeah. even if it were about um, the differences between golf balls, if someone is just you know, like a maniac on stage describing the subtle nuance between this golf ball and that golf ball, I'm going to listen for a little bit because, uh, man, this guy's into it. Yeah. Uh, why is he into it? I want to know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I agree. If there is a, a listener out there who would love to get into uh, becoming a beer writer, uh, what would he or she need to do to kind of go down this
1: path? Sure. Uh, well, obviously the, the first thing you have to be is a, a writer. Uh, so, um, yeah, I've talked to people who wanted to get into sports writing because they love sports, but they didn't love writing. Well, that's not going to work. You're a writer and what you're doing that about is sports. So, uh, you got to love writing already. Um, and there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, general proficiency with that that you're going to have to feel confident about before you jump in. But uh, that assumed and uh, a, a functional level of beer knowledge assumed, uh, from there, it, you're going to probably have to write some articles for free or for less money than you want to to get a few things under your belt. Um, uh, and then, honestly, so much of freelancing is just... Um, a whole lot of hustle uh, and a whole lot of being a pain in the ass and just uh, sending out, you know, pitches, intelligent pitches to um, publications that you have made yourself familiar with so you're not wasting your time and the editor's time and just doing that and um, accepting the, you know, the assignments that come your way and so you can sort of parlay those into bigger assignments. There's there's not much of a way to shortcut it unless you have some sort of, uh, you know, inherited connection that, uh, you're able to play on. You know, you just happen to be friends with, uh, some editors or something. So there's not much of a way to shortcut it, uh, work hard, make organized lists of your goals, organized lists of the publications you want to write for, put those in some sort of order of what is realistic for you to write for, uh, and then pitch them like crazy, turn in everything on time, turn in clean copy, make sure your editors are satisfied and, with
0: it now if there is someone out there who is a writer or is a beer writer but wants to get even more into the world of uh, beer writing you know it sa- sounds like that uh, advice you just gave would still apply but do you have any more mm-hmm. advanced techniques of like how how to like write the perfect pitch letter for a Beer publication or something like that?
1: Well, I think we're all still trying to figure out exactly what the perfect uh, pitch letter is because that probably changes uh, editor to editor. But, um, you know, we, I mentioned Beer Advocate Magazine going out of print, draft, and all about beer both went out of print in the last few years. It is, well, to be perfectly honest, it's getting harder to do this um, professionally. So what you're probably going to want to do, if this is a thing you want to do really intensely, is look outside of beer journalism proper for where some of that writing is going to be able to go, uh, whether that means writing about beer for other publications or expanding your breadth of knowledge a little bit and being able to write about it from the direction of food or uh, from the direction of cheese or chocolate or including wine or including spirits or something like that and being able to diversify a little bit further. Um, But I would say, and this isn't so much concrete advice, but I think it is something people probably uh, shortcut themselves on, is make sure you have a clear picture in your mind of what the ideal writing you want to be doing is, what the topics you want to be covering are, uh, and what the voice you want to write about those topics uh, will sound like. Because it's going to get Easy, and I mentioned earlier with the listicle thing, you're going to have to do it some, you're going to have to write some articles that you're not absolutely thrilled about. Uh, You're going to write some listicles or some slideshows or, you know, whatever. If you find a way not to, please let me know how you got around that at the beginning. But um, you're going to have to do some of that, and it's going to get really easy to get diverted into paycheck assignments that um, are not what you got into this to do. And... Uh, At some point, you have to be, and and at every point, you have to be turning yourself in the direction uh, toward what that end goal is. And I feel like just in the last uh, year or so, I've really started to be able to do some of those assignments that I feel like, yeah, this is exactly how I wanted to write about beer. Um, I still take paycheck assignments, you know, and I... Um, maybe I'll always have to, I don't know, but you have to have in your mind, what is it that I actually want to be writing about beer and accept I probably can't do it on day one, but how do I get there and have an actual goal and strategy in mind to get toward that?
0: Great. Uh, these are these are tips that I will employ as well, because I'd i also like to do a little bit more uh, writing. And, you know, of course, I do write about beer, but uh, I've, I have other interests that, um, that you know, if, if I could talk about uh, how to go uh, paddling or surfing or spearfishing and incorporate that into a beer article, that would just be the coup de gras So that's the challenge that I, that I lay for so, myself, yeah. you know. Um, so I'm going to pivot a little bit and, uh, you've been able to, uh, turn what you do, um, and basically create a beer education business for yourself as well. Can you tell us a little bit Mm -hmm. more about that, what that looks like?
1: Yeah, sure. So I split my time and I would say that my income is also split about evenly between the writing side and the education side. So, uh, from the education side, I, um, I lead tastings at breweries, so I'll reach out to breweries and say, you know, let them know what I do and what I can offer and then uh, come in and uh, do a ticketed event for them where people show up. And um, I will guide them through five or six of that brewery's beers over the space of an hour, an hour and a half, talk about how you properly taste beer, what the history of those styles is, what are the unique ingredients and processes that make uh, each of those beers unique walk through the actual sensory tasting of each beer, um, you know, and then by the end, those folks are way, way more familiar with that brewery's beer but also have much more buy-in toward, um, you know, sticking with that brewery. Now they're going to go up to the bar and get a pint of whatever their favorite was and uh, they're going to bring a friend to the brewery, um, you know, and, and tell them, oh, yeah, yeah, I tasted this beer and it has such and such in it. And so works out well for the brewery. Uh, and uh, you know raises the the interest level of those individuals uh, who are attending. I do uh, pairings at restaurants and bars that have food, so I'll work with a chef to develop a menu and then pair that with uh, beer. Um, uh, or in some cases, I've got a a bar I work with that does um, uh, cheese and charcuterie, so we'll come up with a you know a board for that and then pair that with beer. Uh, and then I do a lot of just uh, purely educational tastings. I actually have a number of public libraries that I work with um, where I will do monthly or quarterly um, series where we, I will um, come in and, you know, for the very first class, it'll just be about generally how to taste beer. And then from after that, we'll walk through style families, our specific styles, and really dive into the history behind them and then taste through examples. And those are the ones that I feel like um, do the most actual education where I have people that um, started coming to those classes with just absolutely no specific beer knowledge at all they had an interest in this thing called craft beer and really didn't know anything maybe they'd had some maybe they had a few styles they liked but they didn't know anything about it and now across um a couple years now that some of them have been attending they're exactly what i was talking about earlier you know their their beer knowledge has grown without them even really realizing how much it's grown and they're getting much more um confident in their ability to taste and um you know, sophisticated in their ability to decide what they like and don't like. Um, And then some of those will uh, start exploring the local beer scene more. So I've got some of those who have, um, you know, started reporting back to me from breweries that they've gone to visit and and what they liked and didn't like there. Uh, I recently had the chance to do a, a larger event where I brought a bunch of people from some of those different classes on a field trip to a local brewery and had, um, coordinated this with the brewery to where I, I interviewed the brewer in front of the group and then they got to ask questions and um, then we toured the brewery and then I led like an hour-long uh, guided tasting of their beers at the end of that and um, we kept it really inexpensive for people, basically just covered the cost of the event, didn't make any, anything above that off of it um, but it, it allowed uh, for a really cool opportunity for these people who have been attending these classes for months or years to now get out into the field and see how this works in a real brewery. And, um, yeah, so I do a lot of different things like that. I do private events. I've got a couple uh, private events coming up in home where people want to do some sort of really classy party for their friends. So they, you know, invite 12 people over and I'll do a, a guided tasting for the group. Um, I've spoken at a Catholic church about Trappist beer. I've, I've spoken uh, at some interesting places. So Um, I'm always looking for new and creative places that might not think of doing a beer event and trying to uh, bring them around to the idea.
0: Uh, And you and I spoke, um, again, offline, but uh, about how to turn that into a business. Uh, I also have some interest, but um, there might be listeners out there who are thinking, wow, that's a great idea. How about I go do that? But uh, a key... uh, portion of this that I'm going to ask you that share whatever you will, um, is from the business side of it is, is how have you turned that into a a, a business? I mean, how do you charge for that? And, and, uh, other little details of that, how that works. Yeah.
1: So generally for myself, and I don't know that this is, uh, I don't think this is necessary and I'm looking at some, some opportunities, uh, to where I would go around this. But for now, what I've tried to maintain is that I get paid by the venue. Uh, so the money does not pass directly from the consumer to me um, just because I don't want there to be any confusion about the fact that I would be somehow selling alcohol or access to alcohol. Um, again, in most settings, I, I think that I would be okay. But what I've done just to make sure is just everything passes through the venue and then the venue pays me a speaker's fee um, rather than the consumers paying me directly. But uh, generally what I do is attendance-based. Most of the time, uh, especially for ticketed events, because that kind of protects the venue from having to commit a whole bunch of uh, money if they're not sure what attendance is gonna be like. So I take a cut from every ticket sold uh, for an event. And then for some of the more educational events, like at the libraries and things like that, I negotiate in advance with them a uh, standard speaker's fee that they will pay me each event, regardless of specific attendance. Um, so it's a pretty simple pricing structure that I do. I do that two different ways, depending on the the type of venue and, um, it prevents uh, the per attendance pricing prevents, like I said, the, um, the venues from getting scared away at the very beginning. If they're not sure how this event is going to go, um, uh, that way they're, you know, they're not on the hook for a large fee if they only have eight people show up or something. So that's how I've done that up till now.
0: Gotcha. And then, uh, you know, another question is, too, is who is it that you are educating? And, well, and a follow-up question will be why do they need that, but um, but are you are you educating people who are just interested in the world of beer or people who work in the beer world that need to get better at what they do? What,
1: Sure. That work? For the most part, almost entirely, it has been consumers. So it's people who just want to learn more about beer because they enjoy it. Um, there do end up being a lot of homebrewers who uh, come in with that because they want to understand more of what they're they're doing. Um, there's a lot of homebrewers who are very, very talented and make good beer, but don't actually know a whole lot about the history of those styles or you know what goes into those and where they fit within the beer world. So I have... Uh, homebrewers who show up. I do some limited staff training. Um, I have one particular account that I work with that um, twice a year I will go in and do some basic um, beer education and uh, um, pairing guidelines. How do you make basic pairing recommendations without having to know a ton about beer? What are some just basic guidelines and things like that? Um, I would like to start doing that more. I have... um, That tends to take a little bit more work to set up, so I have uh, been heading the the tasting and pairing um, direction rather than the staff training, but I uh, am interested in pursuing that further in the future. But for the most part, my attendees are just people who want to know more about beer and aren't necessarily professionally attached to it.
0: So these are mostly people who are just curious uh, or lifelong learners type of
1: Mm -hmm. thing? Yeah, interestingly, you mentioned lifelong learners. There's actually a, uh, a brewery recently that hired me to uh, come in and do a class for a lifelong learning series at a local college. So they had done a, I don't remember what the title of the class was, like Craft Beer in Culture or something like that. And so it was all these um, mostly older adults who uh, took a six-week or eight-week course where they learned about, uh, you know, the brewing process and the ingredients of beer. They went to a, um, a, a more modern craft brewery and uh, got to talk to the brewmaster there, who has uh, 25 years of experience, just about you know the history of the craft beer movement. And then went to this um, this brewery that I worked with that is uh, more historically based. So they use uh, some um, older techniques from like the 1800s for their beers um they're uh they're actually on the grounds of a historical museum so they they brew um in this uh period correct building and use uh gravity fed wood fired brewing system and um they had me come in and lead a sensory tasting in there with them so um that was a fun opportunity and I think we're going to do that again uh, in a couple months
0: now are are a lot of these classes especially like the library for example, uh, are the, are you allowed to bring beer into the library to taste or is it more of like a lecture series?
1: No we do bring for all the ones I do at libraries we bring beer in and all of them talk with their um, with their board of directors and their their insurance and their um, uh, lawyers just to make sure that everything is, uh, above board and, uh, they're only getting, we don't charge any money for those classes at all. So the library just pays me, um, as just a, you know, part of their public programming. So they don't charge the attendees and they're getting like two ounce samples at the most of these beers. So they're getting hardly any, you know, actual alcohol by the end. Um, but yeah, we do actually bring beer in for that.
0: But nonetheless, anyone in the in the uh, community can come in and get a free beer from the library. Small one, but a free beer nonetheless.
1: Yeah, now they do have to register. Obviously, it's twenty one and over. Obviously, sure. IDs get checked every single time, so it's not just like a walk in for your your beer tasting. Um, there's there's more that goes into it than that. But yeah, uh, it's open to the the public first come for come, first serve to register, and as long as you're twenty one or over, you can participate. Yeah.
0: What is your favorite class to teach?
1: Oh wow! Um, I have really enjoyed the opportunities to dive deeper into the actual tasting process. I mean, I I enjoy most of what I do is is really more style families and things like that for those education series. Uh, you know, we'll look at um, you know, the world of porters this month, and the you know secular Belgian ales in the next month, or whatever. Uh, and those are a lot of fun, and of course, tasting beer is always fun, but I really enjoy the ones where we get to get a little bit more um, kind of philosophical about the tasting process and dive into, you know, the connection to memory and emotion. And um, one of the things that I uh, got to talk about recently, and I would actually like to start exploring it more in a writing series, um, is uh, the way that our experiences and our, um, cultural background influences our sensory vocabulary. Um, so not just the idea that we all have a different palette, you know, we always talk about that. Everybody's got a unique palette and, and all that we bring to a tasting. And I, that's true. And it's the thing that I, I tell people to encourage them to not feel intimidated, but I think it sometimes gets a bit overused. Um, everybody's, What everybody tastes is valid. That doesn't mean it's necessarily correct. But uh, one of the things that I I do like to explain is the fact that often our experiences actually influence the, the aromas and flavors that we have vocabulary for. So if you take somebody who is not a trained taster at all and you put them next to a trained taster and they both smell and taste a beer or a wine or whatever it is, the person who is not trained is smelling and tasting everything that's in there, but they don't necessarily have the vocabulary to describe it. They, they can't connect that smell or that taste to specific words. Um, but we all have aromas and flavors that we are familiar with because of... Um, childhood experiences or where we've lived or what our occupations have been or what our um, cultural culinary traditions are uh, that we have vocabulary for that are really more advanced than what the general uh, cultural mean might be. So if you're from a particular ethnicity that uses a particular fruit or spice in its culinary traditions and you run across that in a beer, you're going to be able to assign a word to that That somebody else might not be able to do with the same kind of precision. Or if you've worked in a particular industry that uses a, you know, um, maybe you're in, uh, you do a lot of gardening and you can assign descriptors to different uh, floral smells where to the rest of us it smells floral and we can't get any more drilled down than that. All of us have those flavor vocabularies that are unique to us, and it's not necessarily an issue of being able to taste a thing someone else can't taste, but you can assign a word to it that somebody else can't assign to it. Um, so, I recently did a—I gave a talk at a uh, an event that was all about being able to favor um, different flavors in a variety of different fields. So, we had beer coffee, chocolate, cheese, whiskey, all sorts of different things, and different experts in those fields gave talks. And for the beer talk, I um, gave out some beers that had specific flavors and aromas in them that um, I had direct sensory associations with because of life experiences I've had and encouraged people to talk about where their blind spots might be, you know, um, fields or um, – Uh, cuisines or different things that they were not going to be very familiar with, so they wouldn't necessarily know the vocabulary with that, and things that they might have an elevated ability to describe just because that's something that they've experienced in their lives, uh, not because they're necessarily uh, professional tasters. So that's something that's really interesting to me and something that I would like to start exploring more and diving into in the future, both in writing and in some uh, educational series.
0: Oh, and I think you're onto something. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I did a, a podcast with Lindsay Barr, who's a sensory scientist who worked for New Belgium for the better part of a decade and then left only to start uh, the company Draft Lab. Um, mm. Uh, and she talked about how uh, anyone can learn to taste. The myth of the super tasters has been busted, um, <laughs> and the the myth of the uh, four tastes on our tongue uh, has, yeah. been, has, been, has been long been busted. Um, but she said the biggest part of that is is uh, learning the vi- vocabulary. And I've been talking yeah. about for years about, I've, I've been teaching, even teaching my kids that name that flavor game where just, yeah. ha, just having a name to the face, then you just have a greater recognition. Um, and a good example, you take, you take a leaf from your garden and you taste it and it's like, oh, it's really, really sweet. But there's kind of like a cool menthol effect and it's a little bit spicy. Oh, that's spearmint. Um, just being able right. to work through that process.
1: Yeah, kid. my 11 year old daughter I think has a better palate than a lot of the uh, the folks who I, I run into in the beer world.
0: That's funny. My 11 year old daughter we're, has the same balance. We do
1: family tastings like that. So.
0: Yeah, my my 11 year old daughter will grab some like yogurt, for example, and she's like, "Ooh, it's kind of it's kind of like acidic and lemony." It's like no one, no other kid in your school is going to look at yogurt that way. Right. Exactly. It's great. Um, <laughs> But I think you're right. Just just being able to uh, think and be more mindful is, is going to not only help us become better tasters, but when you start adopting that mindset, then all of a sudden you start thinking about songs or poetry or art or, or uh, just how the day feels. Um, it, it, I really believe that just the world just opens up when you start mm-hmm. paying attention to those little subtle things. And it all starts with just how to taste your beer.
1: Well, and especially when you start paying attention to that, even if it's specifically for the purpose of tasting beer better, you're really into beer, you want to taste beer better. when you start thinking about it in that way, of expanding your sensory vocabulary, suddenly you're you're paying attention to flavors and tastes even when it's not beer. so, uh, everything you eat and drink, everything that you smell as you're on a walk is an opportunity to expand your sensory vocabulary. So one of the things I've encouraged people to do is if you, don't, if you find yourself consistently not being able to identify the flavors and tastes of different herbs uh, and spices when we're tasting beer, go to the store, get some herbs get some spices and intentionally smell through those and taste them. Or if, you know, with this brave new world of, of hops that are all tropical and all these different flavors in there, go to the store, buy papaya. If you don't know what papaya tastes and smells like, buy kiwi, buy mango, buy these different things, do intentional tastings with those to expand your vocabulary. It doesn't have to be, just the the actual time that you're tasting beer that goes toward that education. Everything can suddenly be uh, an opportunity to expand that vocabulary.
0: Yeah, my my wife, uh, some months ago, visited uh, Seattle and went to Pike Place. And of course, that, that marketplace is world-renowned, but it really is a market, and you can buy almost anything there, uh, produce or meat-wise. And so I asked her to bring home some lychees, because I couldn't remember what lychees nice. smell and taste like. And so I, I gave her missions, like, okay, I need to increase my palate, and you're going to be somewhere <laughs> where you can get something that I can't get a hold of where I am. So uh, so she she did some of that, and it was, it was great.
1: Yeah, no, we've, oh, I did the same thing recently. We've got an international market near us, and whenever I'm there, they've always got fruits that I've never even heard of. So I will pick up, you know, some, and then we'll, as a family, my wife and daughter and I will sit down and, um, you know, cut up the fruit and we'll all taste it and describe what we're tasting. I think we had rambutan recently, which oh, wow. was new to me. So, yeah, um, yeah no, everything gets to be... Uh, something that builds toward that better vocabulary yeah
0: but but uh but uh taster beware because as soon as you taste uh something like jackfruit uh, or uh you know some of the things you mentioned um as soon as you taste that and add that flavor to your memory and to your lexicon then be careful because you're probably going to taste it everywhere and everything yeah. is you <laughs> taste. and so it's, it's going to take a little bit of time to let that memory and that new uh, uh knowledge kind of kind of um, uh, mature a little bit um, that's yeah, been my experience. Sure. Um, uh, one quick question before I start winding down, because we are running uh, a bit on time, but um, if, for anyone who uh, wants to become a beer educator, uh, who, who've attained a, a certified Cicerone or more, or a BJCP uh, a judge, what can mm-hmm. they do to become a beer
1: educator? Sure. Um, it, well, on just on the... Uh, uh, the experiential side of that. I mean, not just as I said, that you need to make sure you're a writer uh, if you're going to want to write about beer. You need to make sure that you're actually comfortable getting up and communicating in front of people. Uh, it's okay to have, you know, nerves, have a little bit of stage fright, but make sure that communicating to people is actually something you can do that you feel that you can think on your feet. That um, maybe even ask some some friends or family members, "Hey, do you think that I actually?" Uh, would be able to get up and communicate these ideas, you know, um, and see how that goes. Um, I would also say that uh, it can help. It is not strictly speaking necessary, but it can help to have the Cicero certification or something like it, um, just because... Beer, you know, you can get a brewing degree, but as of yet, I don't know that you can really get just a general beer knowledge and beer history degree. Uh, maybe we're working toward that. I'd love to see that. But uh, people don't have any reason to listen to you uh, without something that, that reassures them that um, you, you know what you're talking about. And even if that's not necessarily as important to the um, consumers, the venues that you're going to pitch have no reason to believe that you're going to come in and not uh, make yourself look foolish or make them look foolish or, you know, make their, poorly represent their beer if it's a brewery or whatever it is. So having something that proves, hey, no, someone else has vetted the amount of knowledge that I have um, can go a long way. I found that to be um, important for me. Uh, So I got my Cicern certification before I started doing this full-time. I, I, it's actually kind of the last thing I did right before I jumped into uh, doing this full-time. And and then, you know, I'm continuing on to, to get my advanced, and we'll see what happens after that. But um, beyond that, I would say work on crafting your pitches and your approach. Figure out, run through what all... If you were a venue and you were going to have somebody approaching you, what are all the questions you, were have, you would have um, about that? So... Um, have an idea of how you want to run an event of maybe some suggestions for, for types of events you'd want to do, figure out your pricing scale, um, things like that. And, uh, then start reaching out to some breweries. Probably you have some kind of friendship with, uh, some brewers and things. If you're, if you're thinking about jumping into it at this level, so maybe approach them first and say, uh, you know, Hey, I want to start doing this professionally. Would you mind if I came in and did a tasting at your brewery for you and, um, kind of go out of that direction. But, um, just as I talked about with the writing where it's important that you have goals in mind, I would say the same thing is true for speaking, but more than just goals, have an idea of what you're about when it comes to beer. Are you just wanting to provide education in the sense of expanding people's knowledge about history and styles and things like that? That's fine. But do you have something that you want to become your thing? Do you want to be the person who speaks about specifically early American brewing or about sensory appreciation or whatever? And see if there are ways that you can be incorporating that and working that in, testing out different things to see how they work uh, and go from there. It always helps to have a long-term plan uh, and an idea of the direction you want to get to.
0: That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um so i want to start the the wind down process um so i've got some fun questions for you um it uh david if you could be the beer king or i'm sorry the, the, the beer king of the world for a day
1: what would you change okay boy um is this a thing that, like, uh, it, 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 can I reach into other people and change their preferences, or is this like a, a, like a rule that I can make or something?
0: Well, being the king of the beer world, all you can do is make a
1: decree. Okay, I see. Um, I decree, I think, because I think this is actually attainable, that uh, no more than one-third of any given tap list anywhere can be an IPA. <laughs> so, I love IPAs. Good IPAs are beautiful beautiful beers, but we are not helping ourselves or anybody else by just being all IPA all the time. So, let's keep great IPAs. Let's keep making them, but any given tap list at a brewery or a bar no more than one third of the beers on that list can be an IPA or or some kind of
0: variant thereof. It seems everyone I talk to who studies beer knows beer uh, very, very <laughs> decently to exceptionally well. We are all tired of IPAs. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not tired of IPAs. I'm tired of it being nothing but IPAs. I want. Uh, yeah, great that's IPAs. what I mean. Uh, yeah. You know, I, there's IPAs are beautiful, but just like man, where's my where's my ordinary bitter? Darn it. Yeah, exactly. My like, there's beer? Just,
1: there's so much good beer out here. And you know when I do these tastings, and obviously I don't just do IPAs, like people enjoy all the other styles that I have them taste. You know, they they recognize these other beers are out there, but what's driven down their throat is IPAs all the time. And if we can just figure out a way to and some of that is understanding, you know, like IPA is now just its own cultural force, so people can go into a place And, uh, you know, they see IPA and it's comforting because if they don't know much else about beer, at least they know that that's a thing and that they've had it and that they've liked it. So maybe they don't know what a Munich Dunkel is or they don't know what a Dortmunder lager or a Baltic porter or whatever it is. So some of it is just that. So the more that we can get people to be familiar and comfortable with beer styles, uh, maybe we'll start to see people be more adventurous outside of IPA.
0: Hear, hear. Uh, so if you had the opportunity to, uh, choose your very last meal and your very last beer before you depart this earth, what would they be?
1: Oh, wow. Um, obviously there could be a lot of answers. I love seafood, so I'm often heading that direction, but I think if it was my last meal, uh, probably my wife and I would sit down to share that and, uh, we would get a just, gigantic charcuterie and cheese board with all the fixings and all the little snacks and everything else on it. uh, And pick our way through that across the space of several hours. That tends to be our favorite way to, uh, uh, to go out and, um, you know, drink some beer and talk for a while is over something like that, where it's not just a, uh, a single dish. You know, you can kind of just pick through different flavors and textures as you're going through the board. So big cheese and charcuterie board and, I'm not going to say that these are necessarily my favorite beer but they're probably be the ones that I would conclude my my experience of life on to pair with the board either an orval or a saison dupont. <laughs>
0: uh oh that that's on my revolving uh, list for the same questions well good charcuterie yeah. and uh, good saison. Uh, Excellent. Oh wow. Um Okay, next question. Um, with all of your experience and everything that you do, in mm-hmm. your opinion, David, why does good beer matter?
1: Hmm. I think good beer matters for the same reason that good wine or good cheese or any of these other things matter, uh, in that we are not uh, animals. You know, we're not just trying to get calories into our bodies. Uh, We and lots of different people can debate the philosophy or theology or anything else behind why this is, but we have consciousness of our surroundings and we get to experience our life in a way that I don't think most uh, beings on this earth get to. Um, And so being able to analyze not just that a thing is good, but why it is good. And to appreciate in that way is something that seems to be pretty uniquely human, uh, as far as we know. Uh, So I think the less that we allow ourselves to do that, the more that we are just focused on uh, purely on nutrition or uh, purely on um, just the narrowest possible range of um, sensory experiences that the less and less we can unlock about uh, what it means to be human and what it means to enjoy the 70 or 80 years that we get on the earth. So could be wine, could be spirits, could be cheese, could be chocolate, could be sushi. Um, I prefer if it's all of them, you know, and and everything else, but um, good beer matters because uh, it provides one more opportunity to Um, intersect with so many different aspects of the human experience while we're enjoying the sensory experience of it. You know, history and agriculture and science and art and and everything else um, ties in with that. So it it provides one possible lens among many of being able to uh, fully appreciate the human experience. I really hope that... Uh, to
0: have the occasion to sit down and have a beer or five with you one of these days, um, I, I hope I, for that I, too. I, I I think we, we can do
1: it over charcuterie.
0: I uh, know. Well, hopefully it wouldn't be the last <laughs> meal we eat, though. But, uh, <laughs> right, but exactly. uh, uh, yeah, sounds like we could uh, go for a while on this uh, subject. But um, for the interest of time, um, couple uh, finishing up questions. Uh, if anyone's listening to this and wants to connect with you uh, and take a class or or learn how to become a beer writer, et cetera, et cetera, uh, how could they connect with you?
1: Sure. So the uh, easiest way is to go to my website, Um I, I assume you'll probably link to that in the show notes. I have a, a weird uh, Scandinavian last name that nobody ever spells right the first time. So uh, davidnilsenbeer, N-I-L-S-E-N.com. Uh, and then from there, there are links to all of my social media outlets. Uh, I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all with that same handle, Beer. Uh, And I try to do different content on each of those. So you can follow me on those different platforms. Uh, And then you can also contact me directly through the website or email me at davidnilsonbeer at gmail.com.
0: Great, David. And do you have any last words of wisdom?
1: Oh, boy, I think I expended all of my wisdom and probably some uh, some beyond that in the last hour. <laughs> yeah, I bet. No, um, I honestly just, uh, I, I would say just in line with what I concluded with uh, uh, why good beer matters, uh, just pay attention to your beer. Um, it's great that beer is sometimes just fun and something that we just enjoy with our friends, and it doesn't have to be something we always think about, but... Uh, make sure that you're slowing down sometimes and paying attention to your beer uh, and thinking about it on the level that we just talked about.
0: David, thank you so much for coming on to the Good Beer Matters podcast and sharing your insights, your knowledge, and your experiences. And uh, I'm I'm feeling inspired to go uh, pitch some articles now. Thank you. (laughs) Great. Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. The whole premise of this podcast is better education leads to better enjoyment. I believe the more you know about beer culture, the richer and more impactful your experiences will be. Is it crazy to think that a good beer, good meal, and good company can impact your life in positive and meaningful ways? Join us in the next episode where we visit with Oregon hop farmers who just finished the very first clinical study on hop terroir. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better appreciation of the beer you enjoy. I believe better education leads to better enjoyment. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters and visit me at goodbeermatters.net. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers.